Hello, and welcome to The Budget Mouse, a podcast that will help you have an incredible Walt Disney World vacation, even if you're on a shoestring budget. I'm Leah Althizer, creator of the websites The Budget Mouse and The Frugal South. I visit Disney World many times each year and have tons of tricks for doing Disney on the cheap. I want you to have the incredible vacation you deserve, so I'm sharing all of my tricks with you on my sites and here in the podcast. This week, we're talking about how Walt Disney overcame adversity in his life. So let's dive in. The birds toppins a bag toppins 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 a bag feed the birds that's what she cries while overhead. Hello again everyone and welcome to episode 56. I started out with Walt Disney's favorite song, Feed the Birds from Mary Poppins, because we are honoring Walt this week. I've interviewed Dave Rich from the Add More Mouse podcast about how Walt Disney overcame adversity in his life again and again and again. And I thought it would be a source of inspiration for you during this very trying time. Everyone in the world is affected by the coronavirus. And I know many of you's lives have been disrupted greatly, not to mention your plans for visiting Walt Disney World in the near future. I wanted to let you know that I have compiled um, all of the recent uh, updates about the park closures and advice for rescheduling your trip, including how to deal with airlines and resort reservations. So you can find that on the Budget Mouse. It's under Disney World Closure. Now, if you are stuck at home, but still dreaming of planning a Disney World vacation, I have put together a seven-day Disney World planning boot camp, and it is going to be only $7 for the rest of this month. You can watch a sample video and see what's included with the course over at thebudgetmouse.com bootcamp. Now I want to get straight to the interview with Dave. It was such a pleasure to talk to him about Walt Disney's life. So I hope you enjoy this show. Dave, welcome back to The Budget Mouse. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes. And in the meantime, since you were last on the show, you started your own podcast. I did. It's called Add More Mouse because that's that's what we try to do. It's try to find the weirder um, things to talk about. Um, right now, we're right in the middle of examining all of the old ABC TGIF shows that shot special episodes at the Disney Park. I love it. I grew up on those for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I never really, like, I guess looking back on it as a kid, I it never seemed weird that all of those shows were going to Disney World, but there were so many of them. And uh, I guess it's because Disney owned ABC. Go figure. That does make sense. Well, people can find it just by searching for Add More Mouse, right? Where they listen to podcasts. Yep. We're on Apple and Google and all that. Uh, Spotify. Nice. And um, yeah, we hope you like it. It's uh, just two goofballs talking about more Disney stuff. So we love Disney. So right now is a strange time in the world. <laughs> and many of us, I mean, I think it's fair to say all of us are facing challenges and adversity that, uh, you know, unparalleled to anything that many of us have in the past. So I thought it would be a good time to talk about Walt Disney and how he 
overcame adversity again and again and again in his life. I think that the average visitor to Walt Disney World knows very little about Walt Disney's life. They see the parks, they see his movies that, you know, come out of his studio, not his movies anymore, but movies that come out of his studio. And um, they may have the impression that everything is rainbows and butterflies, but those who know a little bit about Walt Disney's life know that that was absolutely not the case for him. So I thought it might be encouraging to hear the struggles that he faced and overcame to create these beloved theme parks and films that we all know. I think it's a great topic and we, I I love the parks and my family loves the parks and we try to go as often as we can. I watch most of the new movies that come out. Um, You know, I try to stay current. I'm a huge freak for the parks, but Uh, I have to say, I think my favorite aspect of Disney is the, is the history. And really that's tied up in um, how it started. And I mean, we're going to get into a little bit of it, but he's just, he's, he's kind of an endlessly fascinating character. I mean, even if you're not into animation and as you said, it definitely was never, really never easy for him. I mean, he he really never had it easy. I agree. Yeah. And I have a pretty superficial knowledge of his life. Like I have read an American original, the Walt Disney biography by Bob Thomas, but that is it. And I know you have read many more books about Walt Disney's life. I know because I've bought you some. Dave is my brother-in-law, by the way, if I didn't, haven't mentioned that in the past. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And so I thought it would be great to talk to you about these um, times where he faced adversity and how he over overcame that to go on to create some of our beloved parks and movies. So let's start at the beginning. So I'm just going to kind of mention some things that happened in his life and please fill in details because like I said, my knowledge is superficial. So at nine years old, Disney was working seven days a week as a newspaper delivery boy for his father's newspaper business. Yeah. So pretty much in every Walt Disney biography that you read, this is a huge formative experience for him, as it probably would be for anybody. Uh, Disney's dad uh, was kind of moved around from profession to profession, moved the family around a bunch from Chicago to Kansas City to uh, Marceline. For a while, he owned like a jelly company, and then he kept trying to be a farmer, and none of it ever really worked out. And, And while Disney was in school, I think he was maybe eight, or he said nine, yeah, nine years old, purchased a paper route. Uh, His dad is kind of a legendary, just failed businessman. Yeah, Uh, and like Walt has a really rocky relationship with his dad throughout his whole life, right? This is, not only is this back in the back of the day when dads traditionally were not super affectionate with their children, especially other, you know, especially their male children, but Elias, Elias, however you say it, seemed to be a particularly stern and, and sorrowful guy. Yeah. Um, and so this, this paper route that he buys, um, you know, they're delivering him three times a day. He, he would get up at three in the morning to do the first route before he had to be at school. Then they would get out of school and immediately go do their last route before they went to bed. And, it, you know, he, Walt has stories about, and they're not really like glamorous stories. He's not saying like, my life was so hard. He, he, the interviews you can find of them talking about it, he's very, very matter of fact about, you know, walking in snowbanks and snow drifts by himself he sounds very honest about what he's what he's talking about and you know it's definitely a hard 
thing to do. It contributed to him not being very good in school. He couldn't keep his eyes open when he was at uh, grade school. Yeah, I mean, not like a rosy childhood time. No, not in any way. After high school, it's World War I, and Walt desperately wants to serve in the military, but he is too young. I guess 16, 17, Um, he's not old enough to serve. So he lies about his age to drive an ambulance in France during World War I. You have to imagine a 16-year-old who's that desperate to get out of the house. I mean, I think that's showing his desire to get away from the situation. Yes, and he also is very um, patriotic and always wanting to serve his country in some way that he could. Yeah, by the time he got over there, the war was basically over. But there was still tons of work to do, and um, there's some pretty good photos that exist of him over there. He would uh, he would he would draw pictures on people's coats for like extra smokes, and he would draw pictures on his ambulance, things like that. So he was already sort of messing around with uh, cartooning, things like that. Yeah, because he did take some art and drawing classes in school before he went to France. Yeah, I think he would he'd be the first to admit that that wasn't really ever his strong suit. Right. So after World War One, he comes home and he starts to try to work as a commercial artist and he meets his longtime um, kind of animation partner. How do you say his name? I say Ub. I, I know some people say Oob, but I, I always go with Ub. 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 It works. Is that how you say it? I works. I works. Ub. I works. I never knew how to say his name. So they formed this company. I works Disney commercial artist, which lasts for a grand total of a month before it fails. <laughs> yeah. I think they had an office and they had a desk and like no money. And it basically yeah. flops uh, the second it, it launches. Yeah. But it's really important because he actually, uh, I believe he met Ub at a previous job that he got hired at. Yes. And I mean, if it wasn't for these two guys coming together this early on, I mean, they're there might not be anything uh, to the rest of Disney's because we're going to talk about in a minute. Like Ub is such a crucial figure. Also like a fascinating guy. If you can read about him, like his career beyond the Disney company is pretty fascinating. But I mean, Walt is the idea guy and, and Ub is the artist that basically, basically redefines how animation is done. And Walt is, Walt kind of settles into uh, what he is for the rest of his life, which is like a story man. So I think it was, you know, he wanted to be an artist and he tried and, and he made a small living at it at first doing ads for like local dentists and things like that. It's pretty smart of him to be able to hitch his wagon to a guy who he sees clear potential in and going, all right, yeah. this guy's better than I'm ever going to be. So how, what, what role do I have so that we can be successful? And basically he just, he becomes the, the story man and later just the hype man. He's the one who sells, he's the one who travels. And Ub's one who, who locks himself in a room and, and draws all day. Yeah. And so this, at this point, they're in Kansas City, right? Yeah. They're in Kansas City. So over the course of a few years in Kansas City, Walt tries a few other different business ventures, which all fail, including the Laughagram Corporation. And eventually, while he's in Kansas City, he files for bankruptcy from these failed ventures, right? Yep. Yeah. So at this point, most people probably would quit. Right. <laughs> yeah. And be like, this whole animation thing, this whole drawing thing, it is not working. I'm going to quit. 
No, he doesn't. <laughs> he decides, I'm going to go to California, where his older brother Roy is, um, with $40 to his name, his drawing materials, and he did complete an animated and live action film while he was in Kansas City. And he picks up and he goes to California, right? Yeah, where all of the, basically, at that point, all of the animation houses were in California. Yeah. And just kind of making shorts, short subjects, three and four minute cartoons, uh, like Felix the Cat, stuff like that. Okay. Um, this, so may this, be, this may have even been pre-Felix, but like for a guy to leave Kansas City and go, well, I'm just going to go make cartoons. Like he didn't want to go work for an animation company. Mm. He, he went to start an animation company. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. Is That's pretty much what it did. So the year is 1923. So he and his brother Roy are like living in their uncle's what garage or something. Yeah, I think they had like an upstairs apartment or something oh, yes. like that that they were yes. living in. So they finally find someone who wants them to make movies, right? They they get yeah. their first contract, okay, and they have five hundred dollars in borrowed money that they use to buy a camera stand, and then they can make their first. These are the Alice shorts, right? Yeah, and he kind of swipes the idea a little bit. There was a series called Out of the Inkwell, and I completely forget who who drew them, but it was a series. It was basically like, it looked like paper, and there's a hand that is drawing pictures, and then they're animated. So sort of a kind of a mix of live action and animation. And okay. so he, he sort of takes that idea and goes nuts with it, where um, it's completely animated with a live action girl interacting with the animations. and. Any kid these days would be completely bored by it, but like watching them in context and understanding like how much work went into them. I mean, it's pretty amazing that they were able to pull off and, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they managed to get a, uh, a woman interested, uh, a woman named Margaret, Margaret Winkler, who she's a really interesting case herself. She's the, she was the basically only female head of an animation studio. Hmm. And so this is kind of his actual foray into the, the business is he signs a contract to make Alice shorts and they go pretty well. And, you know, the timeline here, you know, my next note says in 1927, he then has formed the Walt Disney studios and they're authorized to make the Oswald, the rabbit, Oswald, the lucky rabbit series as like their next contract here. I mean, keeping in mind, this is four years since he moved yeah. to California. It's not like this is an overnight success. Right. He's just constantly grinding. So then in 1928 is the year. Oh, wait, there's a setback here though. Oh, with all the, is, all the rights were sold to, to this Mintz character yeah. for, so for is, Oswald, right? This is one, probably the first beyond, you know, obviously if you're, you know, declaring bankruptcy, that's a setback. If yeah. you're dissolving businesses <laughs> when you're 22 years old or whatever, that's setback. But this this issue with Oswald is is enormous, both for him and for what he later becomes. And this is when you want to talk about overcoming adversity. Um, this is probably one of the three things we're going to talk about today that like it it really reinforces how driven he was to yeah. just overcome. So basically, in a nutshell, I'm trying not to get too bogged down in details. But the woman who he has a contract with, uh, Margaret Winkler, she marries a guy named Charles Mintz. Uh, and he basically takes over her business, right? Because that's just what he does. He starts running it day to day. He's all about trying to keep costs down. And as you'll see in Walt's life, money has never really been a big issue for Walt. He'll spend it all in order to get his goals accomplished. Like yeah. he'll eat he'll eat beans for a year straight. He'll sleep on the floor 
with one set of clothes and shower at a bus station. He, he never did any of this for money. It was always because he had some idea and he had to do it. And he was going to do whatever he had to do to achieve whatever crazy idea he had. Yeah. So, so that you can imagine that that doesn't work well with people who hold the purse strings, right? So they're watching his costs balloon while he's making these Alice comedies. Well, eventually Universal Studios decides they want to get back into the animation game. They, they haven't made animation in a while and they want to do it again. And so Charles Mintz gets a deal and uh, Disney comes up with Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And so they make shorts for a couple of years. They sign like a three or four year contract, something like that. And after the first year, I believe, basically uh, Charles Mintz is having his brother-in-law come by, kind of try and crack down on them and keep costs down, you know, kind of showing up and meddling in their work. And at the end of the first year, uh, Disney's been pleading for more money to do the shorts with while uh, Charles Mintz is telling him that there's no more money. And actually, they probably need to do it for less money. Walt jumps on a train and goes cross country to New York City. So that took, it takes like a week, right, to get out there. <laughs> and the whole time he's trying to talk himself up to stand up for his principles and stand up for his animators and talk about how they need more money to do better work, but also to actually like feed themselves. And when he gets there, he finds out that not only is he not going to be able to restructure his contract or get more money, but that behind his back, Charles Mintz has hired away every single one of his animators, except for of Iwerks. And that Disney can either take a reduced pay or not be involved in it. Walt Disney, who has not a dime to his name besides the income that's coming in from this show, says, that's fine, I'll, I'll just be done with it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like... He's got a wife at this point. He just yeah. got married. Uh, and so he just turned down his only option to make money. This is where myth kind of collides a little bit with maybe what really happened. No one is sure what really happened. The official story is that he gets on the train. He tells his wife they're going to be fine. And he sends a telegram to his brother, Roy, who at this point was intimately involved in the finances of the studio. And he says, <clears throat> met with Mintz everything's fine. Talk when I get home, something mm. like that. And basically he said, I'm going to spend this week train ride home and I'm going to come with a character and an entire storyline. And before I get kicked out of the offices, we're going to make our own short film that I can then go sell to somebody. And so he gets back to California. All of the other animators continue working on Oswald stuff. And he takes up iWorks aside explains to him everything that happened. And on the train ride home, he obviously creates the mouse. Uh, luckily, his wife, <clears throat> his wife Lillian, uh, renamed him because Walt's idea was Mortimer Mouse. And she said, yeah. that's terrible, terrible yeah, name. Thank goodness for Lillian, yeah. <laughs> and so I'll wrap this story up here in a second so your listeners don't fall asleep. But basically, in order to get this done, you know, he could have just said, screw this, you know, I'll go somewhere else and, and start over. Instead, he uses the ink and the supplies that are in the studio for about a week. And Ub Iwerks closes himself in a closet for a week and animates the entire first cartoon uh, that is, I believe it was Plain Crazy. Plain Crazy. Uh, with, with Mickey Mouse. Yeah. He drew, he drew the entire thing himself. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so that was his solution. He got, he got cheated out of his one character and his one meal ticket 
And his decision was, oh, I'll just make a cartoon in a couple of days and we'll go sell that somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, like most people to get rejected and like have your character stolen from you, they would have given up at that point and said, you know what, that's it. And like his resolve <laughs> and out of that, out of that adversity came Mickey Mouse. You know, I love that as just kind of. Like, I'm trying to think right now, what are all the good things that can come out of this terrible situation that we all find ourselves in? And so it's just a good thing to be reminded of that, like, out of that terrible situation that Walt found himself in came Mickey Mouse, who brings so many of us joy almost 100 years later. So good thing. to Well, and without without that setback, without creating Mickey Mouse on a train ride. Right. Out of desperation. Mm -hmm. Like, Oswald, when you... Back then, most of these cartoons were pretty similar. They're all creatures. They're all black and white. They're all basically the same, whether it's Felix the Cat or Oswald or Mickey or whatever. If that hadn't happened, he wouldn't have created Mickey Mouse. And we wouldn't have any of the stuff that we have today. And, you know, not only is it a testament to Walt being determined to figure things out, but it's also a testament to him not settling for stuff. Because he could have very easily tucked his tail between his legs and said, okay, well, you know, uh, this is probably something I would do. In that situation, I'd probably be like, well all right, I'll take the reduced pay and I'll figure out my next move while I still have a job. <laughs> right, right. Taking the secure path, right? Right. I've got a wife, you know, we just yeah. got married. I got a, you know, but no, man, he just said, oh, it's fine. Nope. If I can't do it my way, then I'm not going to do it. It's amazing. So then soon after comes Steamboat Willie, right? Yeah, the first the first sound cards. Well, the first fully fully synchronized cartoon. Right, right. And, and that was just met with, I mean, people were amazed, right? Yeah, and that was an incredibly hard process. I probably don't have enough knowledge to get into how difficult it really was. Yeah, but the like technical aspects of it. Right? Yeah, if you read that book, I mean, it's something where he he decided he wanted, he saw the jazz singer, uh, which had, which is like the first film with a little bit of synchronized sound in it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he went straight from, oh, okay, they did it a little bit. So I'm going to make a fully, uh, you know, synchronized sound cartoon. I mean, once again, he's got not, uh, he's got barely any nickels rubbed together. Um, they've already done two Mickey shorts, which haven't gone anywhere, really. Um, they did Playing Crazy, the one called The Galloping Gaucho, and nobody really cares at that point. And so this is kind of like his make or break. He uses the last of their money. Yeah, the uh, first of many, many make or breaks, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, his, I mean, <laughs> up until basically, the, breaks. <laughs> the, the time, until he died, it was. Yes. Constantly, I mean, he never had enough money to do the things. And so, yeah, I mean, and they made it happen. It was a huge success, but he stuck to his guns. They did it once and it sounded bad. They had to do it multiple times. They had to invent an entirely new system for charting out sheet music so that it would match up to the spokes on the film. Yeah, it's crazy. So after this, like, they have the success with Steamboat Willie, and now he has the full, you know, Walt Disney Studios. He has animators on staff, and they are making more of this, of these um, short animated films. But, I mean, he's really pushing himself. He's really pushing his animators. And then a few years later, three years later, in 1931, he suffers a nervous breakdown. Yeah, Um, not, not a good time. No, and he. It, what's interesting about this too is you can you can hear audio of him talking about this, and I mean he's out and about about it. Like he's he's pretty honest about it, which is rare even when he's giving the interview when he's in his fifties and sixties. Like yeah. guys like that usually wouldn't talk about it to talk like that. And um, it's interesting to hear him talk about it. And he he just says you know he was he was working so hard um, up against the wall for so long that it just 
you know, it, it took a toll on him. He had, he had to go on his like first real vacation ever yeah. because yes. he had to get away. On doctor's orders, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he, just because he was this guy who made amazing things happen and pushed doesn't mean that he was immune to uh, overstressing himself for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that he was frank and talked about mental illness, like in a time when no one did. So a few years later, now we're in the time frame of like 1934 to 36, he is making Snow White. Yeah. And so, you know, this is not so much a, a setback at first. I mean, yeah. you know, he, he announces he's been, you know, Mickey Mouse has been wildly successful. So right. that brings a ton of cash into his studio for probably like the first time ever. And so for the first time, his staff, they have money that they don't know what to do with because it's just, I mean, between Mickey Mouse and the merchandising and all that, like, it, it's crazy. And so a lot of people would just go, well, let's keep doing it. Let's make another character. Let's, I mean, of course, they did make new characters, they made Goofy and Pluto mm-hmm. and Donald and all that. But I mean, you know, they could have just stuck to what was working. But I mean, this is another example where he has this crazy idea yeah, he's an innovator. To, he's in. He wants to innovate animation already. <laughs> yeah, he decides like, okay, we've done the shorts, we've been successful, so now we need to probably make a full-length animated feature. And I mean, nowadays those come out every other week in the United States. I mean, everybody makes them to mm-hmm. varying degrees of quality. But I mean, at the time, people when when people first heard about it in public. There were people openly like writing articles saying, you know, this could this could damage people's eyes. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? Like a, you know, full length drawing uh, animation could might might like seriously affect viewers' uh, minds because they're not used to seeing stuff. Oh like, my god, I didn't know that. That's so funny. Could burn I their mean, or was it? I couldn't remember if Snow White was what people were calling Walt Disney's folly. Yes, they, Disney's okay. Folly. Disney's all, Folly. And you can, yeah. you can find a lot of old articles about in like Variety, like all the old Hollywood uh, like trade magazines. I mean, because he was working on this for three and a half we, years. Yeah, right. And so, yeah. I mean, while they were putting out other product, he, he took some of his other staff. And so while they're putting out the shorts, he has this other staff making this thing. But pretty quickly, their funds are just being devoured by the costs of Snow White. I mean... I think I, I didn't I didn't write down what it was originally budgeted at, but it's like originally they had like two hundred thousand dollars in in like nineteen thirties money, right? Allocate towards mm. it, and then it turns into four hundred thousand. And then you know he's going to his brother to say we got to find money somehow. They're they're asking for loans from banks. He mortgages his house to get more to get more money. At at the end of the day, I think they spend somewhere like one point three million on it or something like that and in 1930s dollars that is an insane amount of money to spend on a movie yeah i kind of want to figure out how much was that in 1930 (laughs) oh i'm sure i mean it's okay so i just did i googled that and it says a million dollars in the 1930s is equivalent to 15 million today yeah um and so yeah so an an unheard of amount of money to make a movie Right. So that's why they were calling it Disney's To make a movie that hasn't been done before. Right. And so in Hollywood, every single person that he knows is talking behind his back that like, my God, he's just going to sink his his whole studio on this thing that no one's going to want to watch. Yeah. Because keep in mind, this is during the Great Depression, right? Yeah. And (laughs) I mean, there's no guarantee. No. Mm -hmm. Not only did people say, hey, it might hurt your eyes, which is ridiculous, but like people were seriously questioning like, well, okay. People love cartoons when they're seven minutes long. Right. 
Mickey Mouse is great for seven minutes. Are you making a Mickey Mouse movie? Because, you know, there's no internet back then. No one could, there were no advanced, you know, documentaries about what they're making or, you know, nobody knew. They just expected it was going to be, what, an hour and a half long version of a Mickey Mouse short, right? Yeah, um, that, even now that seems like, oh yeah, that's not, I don't know if I'd want to watch Mickey no, Mouse for an hour and a half. That's no, a lot. No, I don't know if I would. So Snow White comes out in 1937. It grosses $8 million, which is also yeah. unheard of, and wins the Academy Award. Yeah, a special. He did it. I mean, and, and then this dovetails right into his next bout of difficulty, which yes. is instead of just going, okay, well, what made, what made Snow White successful? Let's do that again. He takes all of their funds and all of their grosses from that and plows it right into two separate projects, uh, Pinocchio and Fantasia, both of which completely bomb. Yeah. And he's now basically leverage the studio back to incredible debt. You know, Pinocchio now is obviously looked at as a modern classic, but at the time it came out, uh, oh, and, and Bambi, I'm sorry. So he yes. did three, Bambi, Pinocchio, and Fantasia. Well, they're all looked at now as unbelievable masterpieces in filmmaking and animation. But at the time, Bambi came out, freaked people out because it's <laughs> unbelievably quiet and depressing. Yeah. Uh, Pinocchio is terrifying for kids and, uh, <laughs> and just kind of super bizarre. And then Fantasia is just this, even to this day, is a bizarre creation. It's, it's, it's classical music and animation in a way that no one makes now. So, you know, he did not sit on his laurels and go, cool, well, we did it. We succeeded. How do we do it again? It was, all right, well, we did that once. We proved we can do it. And now we have to really push ourselves. Yeah, definitely another rough period for him. And, you know, I think at this point he's, he employs a lot of animators and he prides himself on um, that his studios are a great place to work and he puts a lot into making it a good environment for the animators and it's kind of like his utopia at his at his the studios and then something that i don't know it probably breaks his heart more than anything is when the the movie studios unionize and then they they, uh, eventually the animators strike. There's a picket line in front of Walt Disney Studios. And I think, you t tell us about that. Like that was a big personal blow to him. Yeah. So this is probably the one situation we know of as the public where he did not handle adversity well. Yeah. He had <laughs> um, a rough go for sure. Yeah. The hiring and pay structure, basically there was no structure. There were animators who made 300 bucks a week, which is a lot of money back then. And there were animators that made 12 bucks a week. Mm. Um, it, you know, and clearly the women were not treated uh, super well there, although no. he was an early employer of women, which he gets a point for, but they weren't ever allowed to do anything except like ink and paint. They were kind of relegated to non-artistic roles, uh, non-creative roles. So that's not great. And so while all the other animation studios are unionizing, he is, his is the last one, his is the lone holdout. And a few of his animators are not super happy with their circumstances, one of which is one of his most famous and well-paid animators, Art Babbitt, who uh, is credited as inventing Goofy. Basically, Art is working uh, behind the scenes to unionize the animators and get them to stick together and sign a union contract. And uh, Walt fires him before it. And because he fires him, he fires a couple other people who are trying to help start the union. Uh, once he fires them, everybody strikes. He did the one thing they always tell you not to do in business, which is to take things personally. He eventually gets out of town on their kind of legendary South American trip. It's a goodwill tour that produces his, uh, his package films, Saludos Amigos and yeah. uh, Three Caballeros. 
you know, he kind of left and let his team back at the studio handle it. So by the time he comes back, they have unionized, they've signed a new contract. He was forced to hire back all the people he fired. Yeah. But he sort of at that point never interacted with the regular people ever again because he, he felt like he couldn't anymore. You know, he's the boss and he he took it personally when they were not grateful for everything that he felt he did for them. Yeah, I mean, I think he felt it was never the same after that. Like the magic was... was no, and he was probably, you know, he. I'm, I'm just completely spitballing here, but I mean, he's probably fooling himself a little bit to think yeah. that... It's to think that the, the rank and file animators who are coming in still th- would think of him as Uncle Walt. I think in his head, he probably thought everybody's happy. And to find out that all these people are supposedly miserable with all this stuff you've given them, that's probably a hard yes. to swallow. Yes, because Walt is always an idealist, right? So over these next courses, next really decade, like the company's debt continues to rise. They make, they make films that just don't do that great. They haven't had another hit like of Snow White until 1950 when Cinderella debuts and is really well accepted. It's the first hit for Disney Studios since Snow White and they start making them making money again. And, and what does he do with that money? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he wants to spend it all, right? On Disneyland. And as they're kind of chugging along, he sort of loses interest in animation. He's involved, but like, he's just on to the next thing. And that thing is to um, build a theme park at a time when there was no such thing as a theme park. Yeah, uh, I mean, the was- closest thing was like, um, an amusement park with roller coasters and a carousel, what have you. It, in, imagine a world without Disneyland and suddenly there is a Disneyland. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's still unlike anything else that really exists. And it, it especially was back then. And so in the night, so this is like the early 1950s and he's has this interest in, in making this amusement park. And he does have another hit though in the meantime, which is Davy Crockett, which is on TV, right? TV yes. series. Yeah, so he's making money from Davy Crockett and he has these, um, you know, kind of proceeds from Cinderella. So he's pouring all this money into the, the initial plans for Disneyland. He's trying to get um, banks to back him. Roy is in the business of trying to procure money. Like poor Roy, he's always sent out on these missions to try and get money for these crazy ventures. And I just can't, I just imagine him like, oh my God. Yeah, uh, I think. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty positive he mortgages his house again. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a much bigger house at this point worth a lot more money. But once again, here he is, you know, in the 1950s, putting his livelihood, putting the place he lives on the line in order to achieve this bizarre dream that, I mean, no one else understood what he was talking about. Yeah, um, I know. This was, this was even more so than Snow White. I think people thought he'd lost it and like that he was <laughs> insane. That yeah. he, this was his folly, like, uh, after Snow White, you know, people were like, he's going to do what? Have what yeah. place? And yeah. so it was just this thing that existed in his head. And <laughs> one of the things that they do, Roy gets them a huge, uh, a huge meeting with the bank. Like he could, he could sit in a room and tell you what it was. And they, they had some mock-up art for different rides and things like that. But there was, there was nothing that could show like what it is. He, he ta- goes to his, one of his best artists, whose name is Herb Ryman. And he says, I need you, I need you to draw me a, an entire map, like an aerial f- shot of Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And Herb says, I can't, like, it, and he, he said, like, he had basically 30 hours to do it. He had to do it. Oh, I remember this. He worked straight through for the whole Yeah, time. and, and Herb long. says, I, 
Herb says, I can't, I just, I don't understand what it is that you want. And he said, I'll do it with you. Yeah. And so they, mm -hmm. they sat in this room and Walt explained what he wanted and Herb drew it and they got it done. And it's a, it's a magnificent drawing and it's actually really close to what they ended up building. Oh, it's crazy. Um, that gave me the chills. Isn't that so amazing? Crazy. So, so eventually he does get Disneyland built. Okay. That it opens to the public in 1955. Now, this is a great story about the opening day of Disneyland, which, um, I'm just going to read from my notes here. So it opens as invitation only given to studio workers, construction workers, the press and officials of, of company sponsors, but tickets to the grand opening are counterfeited and 30,000 people enter the park rides break down and park stands run out of food and drink. <laughs> so yep. it does not go as planned. There's, there's a story <laughs> about they had just poured the asphalt like the day before oh, yeah. And people, women's high heels were sticking into the asphalt <laughs> and they were breaking. Like, it's an unmitigated disaster yeah. uh, this first week of Disneyland. And yeah. it was also on TV. <laughs> yeah, right. He had, that was part of the deal with the, with ABC. Was it ABC? Yeah, that he had to do a show about it. Yeah, they did a weekly show okay, for yeah. the year leading up to it opening, showing the construction of it. And then they did a grand, like, live opening day of it. Now, I don't think the live opening day footage catches anything that is uh, negative, but... Yeah, so, you know, we know, of course, that Disneyland goes on to become a colossal success. Mm -hmm. But it's great to keep that perspective that, like, I mean, first of all, everyone thought he was nuts for making it. And second, when it first opened, it was a hot mess. Right. Yep. So, but, you know, they worked it out. They overcame the adversity and Disneyland is the place that, well, well, we have it to thank for Walt Disney World that we love now. If there was no Disneyland, there'd obviously be no Disney World. So um, I'm just going to fast forward for the sake of time here. Um, in 1964, Mary Poppins premieres and you know, to, to huge accolades. I mean, it is definitely one of my all-time favorites, Mary Poppins. And a lot of people would consider this like the high point of Disney's career because, you know, Disneyland is now a success. There's income from that. He had the money to make Mary Poppins. I mean, it, making it was hard and what have you, but like, it's a, it's a big success. The next thing he starts looking at is one of his biggest gripes about Disneyland is that they could only afford the plot of land that it now sits on. And when it was originally built, it was like in the middle of nowhere. There's basically right. one road that led to it. And once it became a success, all these hotels and fast food places pop up all around it. These really seedy motels were all around it. Um, basically, everybody, you know, was trying to make money off of the tourism there. Yes. And he still like that. I've been there. <laughs> I someday I'll get there. I know that's like the place on earth that I know the most about and have never been. Before. That's funny, funny, but yes, um, exactly. So he's looking for somewhere else, right? Yeah. And so there's an entire book uh, written called the Florida project. That is uh, it's a, it's a whole book just about how they acquired the land in Florida, but basically they buy enough land to do whatever they want with, with no intrusion from any other business. And they buy so much land and in order to run it themselves, they have to be, it's like set up their own township and have voting members that live there. Like yeah. it, it's insane. And I the love the story <clears throat> of the Florida project. I mean, I haven't read that book, but I just love all the history that goes into making. Oh, they were, he had, they had lawyers, lawyers and people traveling under assumed names. I know it's so fun. 
because they thought if it got out that Disney was buying up all this property, the, the, the swampland that was basically worthless would shoot through the roof. Yeah, true that. So, I mean, it's, uh, it did. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but all of this is not to build Disney World. Right. right. That, to him, Disney World was super boring. Like, mm-hmm. that, to him, they were going to build Disney World because they knew that if they could build another one on the other side of the coast, that they would obviously make a lot of money because there's a lot of people who can't travel to California. And so they right. want to capitalize on tourism on these coasts. So clearly it's about money. Disney World is his way of making money for his new project, which is to reinvent the American city <laughs> um, to solve the problems that he saw in American city living. Who, who knows if it would have... <laughs> I mean, right. mm-hmm. when you, when you, there are, there are entire books written about what it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And when you read about it, I mean, it's so hard for me to imagine it. It's just probably what people felt like when he was explaining to them Disneyland. And yes. also- so what you're talking about is the experimental prototype community of tomorrow or Epcot. Yes. Yes. And there's a great movie of him explaining what it is. It's, it's the last thing he filmed before he passed away. And he made that to show to potential investors Yes. So my favorite thing about the people mover in the magic kingdom is the part where you get to see the model of Epcot and that they saved. Thank goodness. And you can now see it when you are on the people mover and it was Walt's Epcot, um, like a scale model of his plans for it. So um, ride the people mover because it's the best attraction ever, but yeah, ride it to see the model. (laughs) <laughs> it's such a cool, it's such a cool model. Yes. I love just at the end of the book and the story about him, like how he was in the hospital and he was quite sick and he was just in his mind, like he could see Epcot and he was describing it and he he never stopped oh. being, he never stopped imagining the possibilities. He never stopped being curious, like this man's spirit is i don't know it's really inspirational to me and again and again and again overcame challenges and overcame adversity and gosh i don't know i got the chills talking about epcot too because it's i I, I it never gets old for me because no. it's just somebody who doesn't know much about walt would think even if you know how i mean most people would probably at this point don't know how he started in animation but they know mickey mouse they know <laughs> disneyland disney world you know he made all this stuff, right? <clears throat> but to know how much of a struggle it was, to know how few people believed in these giant gambles, whether it's yeah. Snow White or it's uh, Disneyland or Epcot, it, it gives me, it reminds me that sometimes when you have some crazy idea and people are like, what are you talking about? It doesn't mean that it's a good idea, but if you're that certain about it, and you know you can't live without trying to see it through, then you you just have to do it. <laughs> yes, yes. And nothing was impossible to him, right? Like no. my, f- my favorite Walt quote is up on my wall right now. It's kind of fun to do the impossible, you know, because I mean, he just, there was no impossible to him. He really believed in the fact that if you brought the right people together, you could do whatever you wanted. You could get stuff done. How do we get businesses involved in helping to improve the lives of the people that live in these cities that work for them and, uh, and bring them into the mix? And I mean, it's a very kind of noble idea um, that I don't think anybody would want to do these days because I don't want Monsanto helping me redesign mm-hmm. my garden. No, thanks. No, it's just, it was in a, it was in a very op- optimistic time you know, uh, and, and probably a time when 
I don't know. I hope things swing back that way, but I don't know if we'll ever live during a time when we believe we can achieve that kind of stuff again. I hope it happens, but I don't know. I think we're living it right now. I mean, (laughs) I think we're living it right now. Look at, look at the unprecedented effort that the scientific community is pulling together right now. Like people are working round the clock right now to try and find treatments and vaccines for this virus. Like, I don't know. Like I think people are digging in and, and, I think it's now, but well, I'm like Walt. I'm an idealist like Walt. So. Yeah, I, I need to see it. I know all this about him and I still have to count for my own natural uh, pessimism. So yes, well, thank uh, you for a, this conversation because it really lifted my spirit. You know, like, a, like I said earlier on, they, everybody should read that book that you mentioned. Yes. American Original by Bob Thomas. It's a great book. Um, there are others out there. There's one that, that really digs into the animation part. It's called uh, Walt Disney, the Animated Man by a guy, I think his name is Michael Barrier. That one's really okay, good. Cool. But start with the Bob Thomas book. It, that's the thing that made me fall in love with all things Walt. Yes, yes, I agree. That is such a good entry point. That's that's my one and only <laughs> book that I've read about him, but I loved it. Well, thank you, Dave, for one. coming on. And I, I hope everyone will check out Add More Mouse podcast. Yeah. Um, send, send us an email. We don't get very many. So uh, right. I know I know people listen to it, but no one wants to interact with us. So uh, well, feel you f- guys are super nice. So they should email you. <laughs> well, thank you. I hope you like it. Okay, take care. Thanks again, Dave. Thanks, Leah.